0: everyone and welcome back to a bonus episode of The Pod and the Pendulum. Uh I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and we are here tonight to put like kind of a final pin on the uh Alien franchise, which we've just wrapped up with our talk about uh Alien Covenant last week, but you know, kind of more importantly, just do like an all, you know, maybe a broader look at some of the work that goes in behind the scenes and you know, where we get to kind of learn about some of the things that we got to cover. Uh, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing tonight?
1: Uh, I've actually wanted this episode for quite some time. You know, when we when we kind of went through the different franchises of the show, you know, we always talked about doing the Alien franchise because I, I know it's kind of near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, you know, it's such a huge deal to me. Uh, and when we decided to finally do the Alien series, the one guest that I wanted to have is our guest tonight because as somebody who's so fascinated with documentaries in general and especially like making of documentaries about films some of my favorite films of all time are those you know i i watch making of docs as much of as maybe even sometimes more than the films themselves and our guest tonight is in my opinion at the forefront of making very just compelling enthralling documentaries on films so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited.
0: So why don't we take a moment, Jerry, and why don't you do the honors of introducing our guest?
1: Charles de DeLazurica, who I am so excited to have on the show. How's it going, man?
0: Good. It's doing, going really good. So I guess so, first, yeah. how good. are you, because you were just saying how like things have slowed down a little bit, obviously, right now with everything kind of, as I wave my hands frantically in the air, everything going on in the world right now. How have you been like handling the past three to four months, we're all kind of shut in and the world seems at a little bit of a standstill.
2: Well, I mean, the the biggest challenge is just trying to find structure and meaning in anything. You know, you wake up and it's like, is today Tuesday and it's actually Sunday. And it's just like those types of things have been challenging. And of course, that's like nothing compared to what a lot of people are going through right now. So on the one hand, I feel like I'm fortunate to just kind of be limping along uh, like a lot of people are. But also nowhere near as uh sort of like endangered or in trouble or or in pain like you know many many other people are so all i can do is just sort of like try to focus on what's next and try to plan for what's next and unfortunately you can't really do that with a whole industry that's basically shut down for the most part it's starting to limp back into it a little bit there's some productions that are kind of ramping up and some smaller films are going but um, I, my, my last day of work was literally like the day before everybody shut down.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I was working on this, uh, TV show called doom patrol and it was like my last day of doing interviews on that. The, the next day we were like, everything was shut down pretty much. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's been like that since March. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's tricky and it's challenging in a, in a kind of a survival sort of way. It's like, you know, I need to make money, I need to work, but also what's the safe way back into a, a working functioning you know kind of like movie making system those are the those are kind of like the the weird challenges uh facing me and probably a lot of other people in the industry but um hopefully we'll find a way back soon because besides making money and besides the work I just I just enjoy being active and I enjoy being creative and I like mm-hmm. even if it's not me being directly creative and just doing the behind the scenes stuff I enjoy watching people do their stuff and documenting it so that's that's the main thing
0: you know I know this is off track and what we were going to discuss but you know in your own opinion like what is it going to take to get productions back up and running again do you see things maybe leaning towards like smaller crews and kind of forming your own like workspace bubble or like what's it going to take to get fully up and going again
2: well, there's a few things. I mean, obviously there's been talk about having crews sign like waivers to say, you know, if you get sick, you're not going to sue the company. I don't think a lot of people are going to be up for that. I think a lot of people right. are gonna really resist that. Um, I, I also think, you know, let's hope there's a vaccine sometime in the next year um, that will help. Um, I got to say, I was watching um, uh, the making of the Mandalorian series on Disney plus mm-hmm. the, the gallery thing and an episode four, the technology episode which was all about, you know, shooting in, in the volume with those big high-def video screens. And uh, that, to me, I almost cried watching that episode because not only was it providing a whole new way of creating worlds um, economically and, and kind of at a smaller scale, but, but even more credibly because now you're dealing with reflections and kicks of light and, like, just a little, little, little bit of fuzzy logic that you get – in the real world that you don't get with a green screen, that you don't always get with a CG environment, this was providing that. So it was a more credible world, but on top of that, it was safer because you're kind of like lab rats, you know, in this one little facility, Uh, whatever, whatever kind of stage you're on, it just seems like it's less people but a bigger world. And I thought that was really fascinating to see. And I am curious how that will even get better and better and better with other productions, you know, Mm -hmm. trying that way of filming. Uh, You know, a while back, I tweeted
1: that there should be an award show or a ceremony focused on the work that people like yourself uh, do. And you, you replied to that, that at one point there was and how you had won, you know, awards for that, not just the Saturn awards, but actually an award show for supplemental stuff and, and DVDs themselves. Do you feel like that's kind of gone away because what we get now are these kind of like really uh, like kind of poorly made five to six minute EPKs that are more about selling the film than telling like the rich story of the creation of the films that we love? Uh,
2: I mean, yes and no. I I think uh, the reason why it's gone is just because there's just a lack of interest. I mean, we've all been there. We've done that. I mean, DVD was super sexy for, you know, for a few years and then, you know, when everyone is in line at the supermarket and there's a two disc set for sale for like $5.99 um, and, and, you know, mom or dad or they're in line, they're thinking about, oh, I'm going to buy that and we're going to kill three hours over the weekend or whatever. I feel like that when it became that common and that kind of uninteresting where it wasn't like the uh, the kind of like the geek gasmic joy you get with like a new criterion release or some like in the old days the big laserdisc box sets I mean that that yeah. that kind of excitement is just gone. It just it is. I mean even I think for hardcore film fans, I mean we get excited about certain titles being released, like certain movies that have not been treated well in the past or have never been released on a certain format. I mean I think we still get excited about those. And then occasionally you get a rare occurrence where it is a big movie, a big new movie that has some some nice juicy bonus features on it that we get excited about, but you can't hang an entire industry on that. Like you used to yeah. like back on back the golden days, I would say from like 1997 to 2007 um, you know, that's when it, that's when it was really getting exciting. And then people really cared and so much so that the studios were spending a lot of money on these projects, not just in the making of them, but in the marketing of them. And, um, and then with that came awards because a lot of these releases again, back during the, the the glory days, um, a lot of those releases were really like huge productions onto themselves. I mean, they had, you know, tens, if not hundreds of people working on them in different facets of of the disc release. And um and they were shot all over the world and they had, you know, hours and hours of content and, you know, it was kind of for our world, you know, for for, for movie nerds, uh, it was, you know, a really, really vibrant time that uh that with that came award shows. And I mean, I remember the one that I was really shocked by was in 2003. And I just happened to go, I, I don't know if I was actually invited. I just happened to end up there uh, was uh, the, the, the DVD exclusive awards, which were televised. That was on Those were on TV hosted by Jenny McCarthy. Jenny McCarthy, who came out wearing a dress made of DVDs and nothing else. Um, that, was, that was on TV. And um, and Alien Quadrilogy won. And, and, I, and the, the really kind of like scary thing about it was cause I, I'm not a good public speaker. I don't, I don't want to be up on stage. I don't want to do any of this like kind of like speechy type stuff. And, um, but I was there and like the commercial break before the quadrilogies category came up, some stage director comes up to me and asked if, if I was who I was. And I said, yes. And he says, could you come with me? And they moved me to the front row of the theater. And I'm like, Oh geez. Now it's like, it's like, okay, now you've <laughs> like totally tipped me off, that it's going to win. And now I'm really freaking out because had they not told me, I would have been caught in the moment of surprise, and I probably would have been okay, or had they told me well in advance, I could have rehearsed or practiced some kind of you know speech, but because they told me like literally two minutes before they were going to announce, I just started like sweating and panicking and If you watch the video it's hilarious i 'm so uncomfortable and awkward going up on stage, um, I said a ton of stupid stuff and uh, but it was it was still I look back as like that was like one of the high points of the dVD Era for me personally was just that they had a televised show, and I got to go up and accept the award for the alien Quadrilogy. So that was kind of crazy well, dumb we, fun.
0: You just talked about the golden days, and I remember, like, I I think back then I was like selling consumer electronics, and I remember what a big deal it was to like get a DVD player. I remember in 1997, I took like my tax returns and bought like one of the two Sony. DVD players that was on the market and it was like first generation didn't even have like component video. Um, it had like an S cable on the back for hooking it up. And I, think like what I remember about that was like the jump from DVD from VHS was so big in terms of like the picture quality in terms of like how much you could actually see with like widescreen that it was the first time that I think the average person watching a movie at home got to experience movies like that do you think that maybe part of the reason that we don't really have that now is like there hasn't been that quality jump, meaning Blu-ray to DVD is, it's nice. It's definitely an improvement, but it doesn't like knock you on your ass. Like the difference from DVD to VHS did and same like, you know, 1080 Blu-ray to like 4k. It's just not enough for the average schmo to really kind of wrap their head around.
2: Uh, for sure. And I, and I think it's interesting because that's, that's probably why it was a bit of a slow and not, sort of like, you know, meteoric transition from DVD to Blu-ray as, you know, VHS was the DVD. But it's, it's funny because if you, if you take people now who are so accustomed to their HD or in some cases, 4K, you know, monitors and you pop in a standard deaf DVD, they'll be like, what the hell is wrong with my picture? You know? Mm-hmm. So it's like looking backwards, it, it is a huge difference, you know? But at the time looking forwards, I totally agree. It just wasn't as sexy and appealing And especially because so many people spent so much money building libraries. I mean, even, again, Mm -hmm. mainstream, you know, middle American families were like, loading up libraries worth of these $20 DVDs Mm -hmm. and feeling pretty good about it. And um, Blu-ray comes along, and and you have to understand, there's also sort of a bit of a format war, uh, you know, because we had the whole DVD versus DivX war that I think everyone hated.
0: Oh yeah, DivX, but DivX, like, quickly made its way to the graveyard, although, Honestly, if you look back at it and what streaming is and like Redbox and things like that, there's almost like it was ahead of its time. It could have worked, but DivX never, because I remember I worked for Circuit City at that time and that died a very, that actually might be the reason, one of the reasons why that company went under.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also you have to remember, as, as I'm sure you do, is that it, it, the reason why it was such a war was because some studios were siding with one over the other. Yeah. Whereas when it became uh, the war, it was a much lesser war, but the the conflict between HD, DVD, and Blu-ray, it, yep. it seemed like the studios had kind of learned their lesson from the DivX thing, and mm-hmm. they were kind of open to anything, and they just kind of wanted to see, well, what, what would the public decide? You know, where mm-hmm. where were the sales going? So I was, I mean, I originally was almost... HDVD friendly, but then pretty quickly I turned to Blu-ray and this was largely because of my Blade Runner experience because that was the first release I was ever involved with, which was a simultaneous DVD, HD DVD and Blu-ray release all at the same time on the same day. Mm-hmm. So um, that was, that's kind of like when I decided, okay, I'm, I'm in camp Blu-ray from that point on. But um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, it's, it's people having spent so much money on their libraries and their, their home entertainment system and all that, and then uh, you throw a new format at them, as we're now seeing with 4K. It's like, well, 4K is not exactly you know, breaking records or doing, right. doing whatever it needed to do with like the what DVD did, but it's still great. I still love 4K it's, and, it, and it's like something as a movie buff and as someone who collects a very large, you know, kind of physical library of titles, I am totally for it. So I will always kind of like upgrade as I need to. I'm not gonna rebuy every title. In my in my collection, but there are certain ones I will always buy you know if they come out with like a you know bajillion K release I'll, I'll buy that you know right. for, for certain movies
1: yeah I, I think my wife has uh, put me in the doghouse multiple times with how many copies of Halloween that I have on various formats uh, but I I think a lot of it has to do with uh, a lot of the extravaganza that came with the early DVD releases are, are kind of gone. Like I remember it being such an event when fight club came out on DVD, like that release was so just insane. Like, and unlike anything that we had seen before on VHS or like, when uh, you know that briefcase for Blade Runner came out with every version of the film, you know it was such a huge moment for people that collected film, and 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 people just love that stuff in general. Nowadays, even when like supplemental material, nowadays like it's almost not announced whatsoever. I mean, you know, you have like kind of boutique studios. Or like you know, A24 releasing you know the director's cut of Midsummer just on their website. You know, like fans have to look for that stuff. But back in the day, there were advertisements. There were these big things, and you know, you, you can't go to like just the the normal everyday person that watches movies and tell them you know how excited you are for you know the missing pieces of of Twin Peaks to come out. You know, it's it's kind of like a a core group of people that like really live for a lot of this stuff. And I feel like maybe that's been lost over time.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, for sure. And I, and I, I feel like what what is keeping it alive in terms of like special features or kind of really cool um, niche titles that you never would see otherwise are really those boutiques you talk about. I mean, you know, the Arrows, the Shouts, Criterion, like all those companies that are, um, you know, they might not have the big muscular studio budgets that that you know some of the older again the glory days golden age titles did but um but the passion is there tenfold you know i mean it's like you've got people that really love these films and will you know dumpster dive every corner of the earth to look for lost material and, and try to get people for interviews who haven't ever spoken about a particular film so the passion is certainly there um with the boutique companies but unfortunately i just feel like in terms of the mainstream and and kind of like the the bigger, bigger studio titles, You're you're not going to see that until there's at least some kind of new um, development either in how content is presented and that could include some form of streaming or there's some new technology that allows for some new experience which I don't know what that is. Cause if I did know I'd be a billionaire. So uh, it's just, uh, it's just who, well, I guess we'll have to see what excites people because that's really what it boils down to. On the one hand with the, the COVID situation, you've got people staying at home a lot more than they used to, which you would hope you would think would allow them to watch more and more movies and behind the scenes content and things that they might not have had time to look at before. Uh, but on the other hand, people have different priorities now and they may not want to mm-hmm. spend money on anything that's, could be you know perceived as sort of trivial or or not putting food on the table so again very very strange tricky time we're in and I have no idea how it's going to uh, pan out but um, I do think that the the smaller kind of more nimble production companies and, and distributors are the ones that will keep uh, the, the, I don't know, keep it alive in terms of behind-the-scenes content.
1: I know, I know you went to USC uh, for filmmaking, and uh, the whole documentary and special features kind of thing—that's kind of a, a kind of a side quest for you, right? Like you went to be more of a, a narrative, fictional, like director,
2: right? Yeah, that's all I've ever wanted to do since I was like seven or eight or nine years old. Like that, the the time between Jaws and Star Wars for me basically was where I just realized that's all I want to do is make movies and specifically direct. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and that's why I ended up at USC was to, you know, pursue that. Um, And I, you know, I was, I was doing okay in that regard. I mean, I was, I had, you know, directed several short films I was fairly Mm -hmm. happy with and um, I directed a music video and some commercials coming out of film school. So it's like, you know, it was, it was kind of there. It's just that, man, I was so broke, you know, I had no money. I had these huge student loans. I was, Barely getting by, and um, and that's kind of when I started doing internships. And I was reading scripts for fifty dollars $50 a pop at certain companies, uh, including one of which was Scott Free Ridley and Tony's uh, Scott's uh, Production Company. And so that you know, it was just it was just limping along and limping along, and then finally the opportunity to produce DVD content came up. And uh, it's not something I wanted to do initially, but I I seemed to take to it pretty well, and. Um, I kind of enjoyed the process and I enjoyed not only going back in time to, to do retrospective uh, supplemental content, but then also to do you know contemporaneous sort of like more modern onset uh, mm-hmm. behind the scenes, which was nice because I could do more than an EPK crew uh, that was there to basically capture enough footage and enough interviews to help promote the film, which is very vital. And I use EPK, EPK footage a lot in my own work. but. Um, I also wanted to go deeper and just kind of be like a second camera to kind of get the periphery of of the production so that we kind of had a better sense of what really went into it. Um, Yeah, so that was kind of like, I wouldn't even call it a side quest so much. It was just a a very pleasant distraction for 20 years. Definitely. And I I feel like
1: like people don't realize that what you've done as far as supplemental work and the documentaries and stuff, that's very much storytelling on its own. I mean, I think that's what amazes me about it so much. Like, watch, like, I watched, uh, you know, the uh, your documentary on Alien Three today with my son because he had never seen it, and the amount of of just like dedication, like that it takes to make these. I, I think maybe people take for granted, you know, because like you're very much in charge of kind of creating the story of how these films came to be. And I, I think maybe that's lost in a in a, in a lot of the way that people kind of take these for granted. I mean, even more recently, you know, like even though a lot of people kind of didn't receive Neil Marshall's take on Hellboy very well, I think the documentary you made on it is very interesting and shows the film that Marshall wanted to make, and that adds such a, a different layer to be able to experiment or uh, to experience the film itself. You know your document your documentaries and your 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 making us kind of they have the ability to do that. When it comes to actual production of that, do you use that to kind of tell stories? Uh, you know through that stuff.
2: Well, in in the best possible world, um, it's it's more it's more journalism. You know, it's more of a journalistic approach to kind of following the story, and finding what's interesting. Also, what really helps tell the overall, I don't know, um, just view of. The challenges the filmmakers you know, had and the origins of the story and like all, you know, all the tried and true basic stuff. But um, I, I, don't, I don't go in with a story in mind, unless it's like an older film, in which case there's a little bit of, a, of an informed kind of narrative history in my brain that I kind of applied, but I'm still trying to track down, okay, what I want, I want these people who work on these films to tell me their story, and then we will edit that together in hopefully uh, an interesting, informative, and maybe even entertaining way um, that's that's the the best possible world. But then sometimes you get uh, films like in the case of, of Neil Marshall's Hellboy, and I put Neil Marshall in quotes because I don't think he would want his name. On yeah. The film. Uh, and, and Neil's a friend of mine. We've we've spoken about this you know quite a bit. But uh, on that one, you know, Neil was the one who brought me in to do the documentary. And then of course there were a lot of behind the scenes issues, and and the film kind of came out in a different way I think than everyone wanted it to come out. But Um, I felt like, okay, for this one, I'm not going to have, first of all, I'm not going to have the perspective on looking back because I was putting that stuff together while the film was still being finished. So there was no sense of how is the film going to perform with an audience? How is it going to be received by critics? Any of that stuff. So I thought, well, since I'm not going to, I'm probably not going to get the feature to work with as, you know, for cutaways and and various Mm -hmm. things. Um, let's just do a really nuts and bolts, straightforward, Um, Documentary that just like there's there's no agenda at all. It's just like here's here are the bits and pieces of how this film was made, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. And and I and I, I came out of it thinking that you know it was it was perfectly fine. It's definitely not one of my you know most spectacular documentaries, but it was still it was nice to do kind of a basic meat and potatoes documentary that didn't have. Uh, any kind of drama, in, in, you know, infused in the in the narrative of the documentary. It was just sort mm-hmm. of like, hey, here's how we made the film." But it wasn't promotional, you know. It didn't. It didn't have. Any, it, I didn't think it had any fluff necessarily. It might have had a little bit of back padding here and there, but it it wasn't, you know. But it, but then you look at like the Alien Three documentary, which is all drama,
0: and all yeah, drama,
2: yeah. Epic, <laughs> epic conflict behind the scenes, and that was a miracle because, you know, I got to say, back in the day, you know, Fox was incredibly generous uh, in in terms of, you know, storytelling on the documentaries. Like, you know, they, I I didn't get hardly any notes on um, the other three documentaries I did on Alien, Aliens, and Alien Resurrection. Uh, It was only because Alien 3 was a bit of a, you know, hot potato because of Fincher uh, not wanting to be involved. And one exec at the studio who's no longer there was concerned that that was gonna, you know, derail everything. It was gonna be a nightmare and all that stuff. So that's why the DVD version of the Alien Three documentary was kind of censored, and the unfortunately, you know, a few years later, when they came to me for the Blu-ray, um, they allowed me to, you know, include the original uncut, uncensored version, and I, I even added some stuff to it too. So mm-hmm. um, the Blu-ray version is definitely the, the recommended one of the two. But that one, that was a miracle that, that I mean, all all four documentaries, frankly, I think are pretty honest and candid and get into like some serious, you know, uh, behind the scenes drama, but none of it is like muckraking. It's all meant to show the creative clashes that very passionate filmmakers have from time to time and how that affects the film and, um, and how they get over it. And then hopefully at the end of the day, the film is a success and you can say, OK, that that war that was fought for this film was worth it, you know, regardless of whose feelings were hurt or who didn't get final cut or whatever, you know, that's part of the process. That's Hollywood. You know, you, you, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it, as they say, I'm super chicken. Um, It's kind of like, that's kind of what you had to deal with. So um, the, the Alien 3 documentary, I'm just kind of like shocked that it finally, you know, on the Blu-ray set came out in its original form.
0: Watching the Alien 3 documentary, it felt like everyone that was interviewed. Part of it was like, in hindsight, looking at what Fincher became. I don't think anyone that was involved at the time thought he would have become what he is now. But also there's this sense that it was a missed opportunity that looking back, everybody involved wishes they could have done things a little bit differently.
2: Absolutely, and I, and I think that, uh... I mean, it's like Mike, Michael Bean kind of says something similar to that because, you know, we interviewed him for mm-hmm, Alien, right? But, but when we had him, I also had to ask him, I said, how about Alien 3? And and he even says it himself about the whole, um, the, the money they had to pay him to use his likeness in Alien mm-hmm. 3. And he really gouged them pretty hard because he was upset that they killed Hicks. He was upset that, you know, the way he was being treated and all that. But then... He, he himself said that, you know, if he knew David Fincher was going to become David Fincher, he probably would have let him use the footage for free, you know, right. for free. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the thing. And I can, you can imagine now like having Fincher either go back in time with the clout that he has now, or let him just direct a new alien movie. I mean, and, and let him do it his way. I think it would be certainly one of the best ones. I mean, I would, I would, I would have to think because he mm-hmm. just, he's such a huge fan of the first film and, um, and now he's just got like the the power and the chops and everything else he needs to just tell the studio to piss off and let him make his movie. You know? <laughs> right. Definitely. I, mean, I still how do you, think, um, I still
0: think though, David Giler would still kind of give him shit no matter what. Like, I still think he would interject himself into whatever <laughs> Fincher, not, Fincher wanted sure, to
2: do. I'm not sure Giler would be allowed on the set. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if, if, Fincher was, if Fincher was directing it an and I knew like, you know, now or, or any mega director. I mean, that's hard to say because I don't know what everyone's contract is. Cause I'm sure Walter Hill and David Geiler would probably still have to be involved. But um, yeah, I, it, that's the thing. It's like, there's so many big, I don't want to say egos, meaning like, like, a, like the egos in the bad sense. It's just like, you have big, Voices, you know, that need to be heard because they are there. They're part of the the process. They're the part of the alchemy of the people who made the Alien series what it is. So you can't just like throw people off on the side. But by the same token, you have to let the creative people, the people that have the vision, do their thing. And and that was something that didn't happen on Alien Three. Fincher was just. He seemed like he was just undermined on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, with how much footage that you shoot for a lot of your documentaries, uh, at what point do you see uh, the decision to uh, approach it one way or the other? You know, you mentioned Hellboy being more of a uh, kind of like, this is how things happened, you know? And whereas I think your documentary in Prometheus is like that too. And that's why it's one of my favorite things you have done is it shows how the whole direction of a film can change over time. I mean, just throughout that documentary, what the film began as, you know, their goal of the film changed dramatically, you know, from what we ended up seeing in the theater. As a filmmaker, at what point do you notice that, you know, like this is the direction I'm going to take this documentary?
2: Well, I mean, usually... It always begins, especially on new films, where I have a conversation with the editor I work with, like in the case of Prometheus, that'd be Will Hook, who's edited several of my docs. And, um, you know, he knows what I like and he knows that I prefer honest, candid, nitty gritty, you know, moments and um, storytelling in the documentary. I don't like a lot of so-and-so is a genius and -and -and such-and-such is an amazing thing and all that. I, I, I don't like those types of moments much. Um, so, you know, he will like that, like in the case of Prometheus, you know, Will would kind of rough things out. And it was interesting because on Prometheus, Will's first cut of that documentary, I was really unhappy with. Actually, I I was almost thinking, I mean, I would never say this to Will because I love Will dearly. He's a great friend and collaborator. But in the moment of anger (laughs) of watching the first cut, I was like, dude, I might have to find a new editor, you know, but we, 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 talk it out and we, we figure out, okay, what's, what's important. What's, what's missing, you know, and, there's no, again, there's no agenda necessarily in terms of like, this is the story we have to tell. It's just more of what's interesting and what are the more interesting human moments on a set. You know, we don't want to just see endless shots of tech, you know, and of, of pulleys and levers and, and lights and stuff like that. We want to be there when people are in a room making a, a creative decision that impacts the rest of the film. And unless you're rolling nonstop, you, you might miss a lot of that stuff. I mean, even if you are rolling nonstop, you're going to miss stuff because you can't be everywhere at the same time. So um, with Prometheus, we had just tons of footage. I mean, I'm sure nowadays it's nothing, but back then we had like, you know, seven terabytes worth of footage that we had shot. And it was just sort of like, okay, now we have to make sense of it. So generally speaking, what I would do is I would use my questions for the for the interviews as kind of like the, you know, the I wouldn't call it like a three-act structure necessarily, but it's definitely pre-production section, production section, post-production section, and um, you begin there. And then you start kind of whittling that down to specific beats within those sections. And, uh, and then you kind of end up with a, a decent, I I think generally honest story to be told. And again, it's not going in saying, no, it has to be this, you know, like in the case of Blade Runner, where it was, you know, well-documented for a long time and people knew a lot of the stories. I wanted to get the new stories. I wanted to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. And that's why we Mm -hmm. interviewed like, 80 people for that. And, uh, and that, that allowed for kind of a a new different flow of storytelling um, that, you know, was what I thought was pretty cool. So it's, it's, it's never the same thing twice. I'll tell you that it's like, every time it's a little bit different, every time it's, it's kind of a, a new challenge, but um, but generally I approach it in in a very kind of simple journalistic, let's be honest kind of way.
0: With the Prometheus documentary, one of the things I found interesting was there were bonus features within the bonus feature. Yeah, um, you have a three-hour plus documentary, but then you could also, at certain points, like pause it and see like a supplemental spec um, on it too. How, one, you know, one thing was like, how do you determine like what you think needs to get pulled out of there? Versus like, you know what, this is fascinating and I want people to see it, but it really kind of hampers maybe the flow of the doc overall
2: Well, I mean you just have to kind of consider those little bits which I call enhancement pods You just basically consider them as like deleted scenes. You know, it's like you cut together the whole enchilada and then suddenly you think okay this this part is a little Off-topic or this part's kind of like not working with the flow of it, but by the same token, you kind of, that is one area where you might have to do sort of an a la carte menu up front and just say, okay, we know that, for instance, the, the, the piece on, the, the footage of Giger actually is in the main documentary. That's not one it's of the enhancement pods, but- I thought it um, was. I apologize. But no, but it seems like it could very well be one. Um, but, uh, and then, by the way, that's another story I have to tell you, because that was one of the most amazing days I've ever had mm-hmm. on any production I've worked on. But um, but to the the, the the enhancement pod situation, it's sort of like- uh, on Prometheus, we had one called um, Prometheus, the board game, right? And that was kind yes. of like John Spates, the writer, mm-hmm. created. He made his own physical board game with pieces and everything to help to help him visualize the geometry of the script he was writing. So he came over to my house with the board game, and we put it out on the, the dining room table. And just had him kind of like you know play with it, and we shot him doing that and explain it. So I, I thought, okay, that will never work within the f- the general flow of the making of like the big story. But that's a really great, fun little enhancement pot. That's a little side story, you know. Um, my one of my favorites on Prometheus is when I think it was called the uh, the tale of the fanfic fake, mm-hmm. which is about when we were when we were actually in England yes. um, when, mm-hmm. when Pr- Pr- Prometheus was shooting. Uh, it was like myself and Stacy Mann, the publicist, and Carrie Brown, the still photographer. We all shared the same office, and we were all in our free time just monitoring all the fan chatter about Prometheus and like how everyone was getting everything wrong. And it was just, it was hilarious because people are like theorizing and saying, Oh, well my friend who was on the set said the aliens are 14 feet tall and everything like that. So some <laughs> stories like that, but but we were, we were having fun, but we were also reading to see if anyone was leaking anything. And, 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 fortunately no one seemed to leak anything directly from the set, but somehow this script got in circulation that was called alien harvest. and, people were taking it seriously because someone went out and actually wrote a complete script that. Wow. Yeah. That I get, I mean, I I started it and I'm like, no, I I probably shouldn't read this, but it was sort of like, okay, someone not only wrote an entire script, but it seemed semi credible enough that it might be the the real script. (laughs) Um, So we were, we were kind of watching that from afar, you know, having a good laugh, but also kind of concerned that people thought that was really the movie. So when, so when we're cutting everything together, I thought, you know, that'd be a fun story to tell. It was like the fanfic fake, you know, the the alien harvest script. Um, and I even designed like a, a a blue harvest looking logo for alien harvest and we were going to (laughs) make shirts, but never did. But, um, anyway, so that was like, those are, those are enhancement pod type things where they're kind of like fun little back alleys and side streets that aren't really part of the main boulevard. And there's
0: still like more care into those little, like you said, like the side trips and there are on so many discs nowadays, like there's more there than there would be on a lot of movies you would pick up where like they, you know, say tout their main feature or their main bonus features.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've noticed one trend um, that uh, I think it's mostly budgetary, but there's a lot of, if you look at a lot of the boutique special editions that come out, I mean, it's all, it's all great stuff and it's all very, very worthwhile, but you'll see, it, and it's almost like, a, a, I think Criterion kind of pioneered this, where it's sort of like a, one sit down interview with one person, not like a big cross-cutting documentary that includes stories being told and bouncing, bouncing them off other people. It's like a conversation with so-and-so, you know, a talk with whoever. Um, but that way you don't have to edit. You spend, you spend less time editing, so it's cheaper mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's simpler and it's more bullet points in the packaging. So that I think is kind of the new trend I've noticed quite a bit of is just like one-off, one interview per piece, mm-hmm. and um, and again, it's fine. It's, it's a different way of doing it, but I, I have noticed like there's a lot, there's like more smaller pieces which looks better on the packaging than one big three-hour documentary, which you know doesn't doesn't read as content when you put it on you know a bullet point listing on the back.
1: Well, I, I think a lot of people uh, that buy these don't realize that a lot of that's mandated by like some of the studios and that kind of, I think, hinders the approach a little bit, you know, that and and a lot of people, I think, don't realize, you know, if they don't see like a certain person involved on the list of people on, on the supplemental material, they think, hey, you didn't ask that person and that kind of stuff, you know, uh, like have there. Has there ever been like an experience where other than Fincher, where you kind of just wanted to have a particular person involved in these documentaries, but for one reason or another, it didn't work out.
2: Oh yeah, sure. I mean, several. Um, I I mean, it would, it would take too long to list them all, but I would say one big one that I really wanted badly was Vangelis on Blade Runner. Um, Yeah. And and I was, I had spoken with his manager, um, a lovely lady by the name of Cherry Vanilla uh, <laughs> spoke with her for months and she was wonderful. I mean, I, I, it was delightful talking to her and she kept saying, well, you know, maybe we can get you on a plane to Greece and you can go interview him at his studio. But he insists to use his own video crew. And I'm like, I don't care. Just get me out there. You know, it's like, Oh, yeah. yes. Bend my arm. I'll go to Greece to interview Vangelis, Uh tough gig. But, um, it, but it, I was really bummed that he just couldn't bring himself to do it because I know he's, apparently, you know, kind of shy and doesn't really like the interview or be interviewed. Um, and then, you know, shortly around the time of the Final Cut set coming out, he did an interview with the New York Times. I was like, oh, <laughs> he did an interview and it wasn't for Dangerous Days. So, yeah, that's why at the end of Dangerous Days, there was actually a disclaimer that says, you know, we tried to get everybody and anyone who didn't appear, you know, politely declined. So basically on Blade Runner, it was Vangelis and William Sanderson were the two that I couldn't get. But um but yeah, almost every project has one, you know, Alien, I try to get Yafakoto and Ian Home, you know, I mean, there's just, there's always a, a, a couple per title that just, you know, it could be scheduling, it could be personal, it could be any number of things, but it's never sure. like mean spirited or, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's just, it just didn't work out. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, many.
1: You know, going from these documentaries and all these interview stuff to tackling things like the director's cut of Legend or Blade Runner Final Cut or Alien 3, I mean, assembly cut. I mean, they must be very different approaches. How do you separate uh, your approach from doing one or the other?
2: Well, I mean, it's, it's the same with the, with the supplemental content. There, there's, there's no one way to do it. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. so rare that any process has been repeated exactly the same. So you just kind of have to look at what is it that we're doing? What needs to be done? who are we gonna to get to do it <laughs> I mean really su- super simple questions to begin with mm-hmm. you know and and then it tends to resolve itself in, in terms of who's going to do what and when and how and how much money it's going to cost and is the studio okay with it and you know um and sometimes you have to cut corners and other times the studio is is wonderful and they don't say you know no to hardly anything so um yeah it's it, it really all depends on which title we're talking about i mean I think of of all of them, Blade Runner was certainly the longest term one, that, that took the longest to do for a number of reasons, um, but, but having all that time uh, allowed us to do it very thoughtfully and, and kind of like not rush through it and, uh, and allow technology to get better and better and better so that when we went in and we replaced uh, Joanna Cassidy's stunt double, uh, Lee Pulford, who was the stunt woman who was running through the glass, um, you know, if we had done that effect, sequence basically at the very beginning, it probably wouldn't have looked as good as it does now because we had to, you know, go years and years trying to get this thing going and it allowed technology and people's experience to improve and uh, so when we actually did get around to it, you know, the team at Sony, Imageworks and uh, New Deal Studios and all the guys who worked on that, batch, that part of this, um, and there were, there were many visual effects teams that worked on different parts of Blade Runner, Final Cut, um, I just think having that extra time allowed everyone to just do it better. You know, because everyone was like a little bit more just thoughtful about it. And they had the time, and it wasn't just like this cheap rush job. It's like it was like it really was kind of like doing tiny, tiny little perfect restorations on the Mona Lisa of science fiction. You know, that was kind of like how I looked at it. I, I didn't want to screw anything up. What about on
0: something like the assembly cut, which is you know, with with I gotta mention with Blade Runner that you have a lot of input from Ridley Scott when you were putting that together, or with someone like with Fincher who completely just wants to wipe his hands of the film, how do you kind of honor what you feel his intention was, but with don't have really access to, you know, picking his brain at that
2: point? Well, I mean, it would have been a far different thing if we had no um, existing cut to work off of. Mm-hmm. Like if we were just making it up as we, as we went, that would be basically a fan edit and not, anything I think people would want to see other than just to maybe see the extra footage. But, um, I'm glad we didn't have to do that because we actually did find uh, an existing cut, like an early cut of the film that had all the different footage in it had the, the ox and it had the abattoir with a superface hugger and it had all the stuff with garlic and capturing the alien, the toxic waste dump and all, all that stuff was in this alternate cut that we found this early cut that was put together before the reshoots and everything. So, um, so basically, like for ninety-eight percent of it, we just had to conform to that cut. You know, we just mm-hmm. had to work with Fox and um, identify the uh, the original assets uh, that would allow us to make a you know a nice high def master, and just kind of then fill in the blanks, which were some visual effect shots which weren't finished. Some were started but not finished. Some were not even started at all. But we, but Richard Edlund, allowed us to look at his visual effects notebook so we could see the storyboards and get a sense of, okay, that's what the shot looks like in storyboard form. Now we can start kind of like matching that composition and trying to get the elements right. So we, again, we work with multiple visual effects companies to uh, to do the different pieces of the, the assembly cut restoration. But because we didn't have Fincher involved and because he didn't, you know, I had, had less than zero interest in uh, providing us with any guidance. That's all we could do was look at the history uh, and go through the, the boxes and the archives and just kind of like, just do the best we can to approximate what a finished version of that alternate cut would look like. And I think for the most part, we got pretty close. And I think for the most part it was successful in showing fans that there, not only was there a different version of the film, uh, earlier on, but that it might've been better. And, and, and again, it might've been better had they just left Fincher alone to do his thing. Um, I, I believe me. If Fincher had said yes, I want to be involved. I'm sure Fox would just let him do whatever he wanted with, with mm-hmm. his cut, you know. But he had no interest, and I totally get it. I totally understand that he didn't like why he didn't want to do it. But um, in his absence, I think we did the best job we could. And again, it was all based on an existing cut. Without
0: disparaging this movie, but when I look at the four films in the Alien box set, you have two of which are all-time classics uh, in Alien and Aliens. And you have Alien 3, which is a fascinating, it's a flawed film, but it's really fascinating for a number of reasons. When you get to Resurrection, which to me is like a fun 90s action movie, from watching the documentary, it seemed like it was a mostly pleasant set to work on, um, especially when compared to Aliens um, and Alien 3. What are the specific challenges on putting something with just as much care to it as the other three films in that set, um, but maybe the story's not quite as
2: readily apparent? Well, in the case of Resurrection, it was kind of a double whammy because I'm not a big fan of that film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, there, there's that to begin with. But I kind of, I think on any project I've ever worked on, even movies that I'm not a big fan of, I still try to um, put myself in the shoes of someone who is a fan. Like I pretend like I'm the only fan on earth of this film and I'm going to treat it with the love that it deserves. So in the case of Resurrection, I could still approach it from the point of view of that I'm a huge fan of a lot of people who worked on the film. Like I don't think I've ever seen a film with that much talent behind the screen behind Mm -hmm. the scene and on the screen that the the final result just wasn't there. Like for me, I I did did not like the final result, but man, everyone who worked on it is a genius in their own Mm -hmm. way. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of, that was an interesting way into it for me. Plus, uh, you know, the Fox EPK crew back in the day shot a lot of footage on Resurrection. So it was easier to go to the vintage behind the scenes footage on that than it was, like, if you go back in time, the one that has the least amount of footage is Alien, obviously, Mm -hmm. and with each subsequent film, you get more and more behind the scenes footage. So it's easier to lean on the experience of being on set versus having people having to tell their stories. So Mm -hmm. Resurrection benefited from that. And also, you know, there was a little bit of behind the scenes drama on that, not much. Uh, And it was all kind of just people, I think, with different tastes and different opinions on how it should have gone down. But they shot Resurrection in L.A., So it was on the Fox lot and I think Jean-Pierre Jeunet right off the bat um, accepted that he was directing a big Hollywood movie and not Amelie, you know, or or a delicatessen or whatever, like he knew he was making a big studio sequel movie and and he rolled into that. So it was sort of like there wasn't much clash uh, to be had. Uh, And if there was, it was probably, you know, low stakes stuff, nothing big. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, it was kind of like what we're talking about with Hellboy earlier, it's like, okay, well, what, let's, let's forget about the drama and just focus on what did they do to make this movie and keep it very practical and like talk about the underwater shoot, talk about, you know, the costumes, just talk about the, the basic filmmaking, you know, stand kind of like, kind of like standalone tropes that you deal with on any documentary. It's like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go department by department and just, you know, tell that story and not worry about who pissed off who. You know, it's like, that's, that's not there in the resurrection documentary, but I still think we made a pretty, you know, pretty beefy documentary. And if you're a fan of the film, there's tons there to, to enjoy. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, going from experiencing Jaws and Star Wars and deciding that, you know, I want to direct, I want to make films and then going off on this career of making these great documentaries, you know, it coming full circle to being able to finally do your film with Crave. I mean, how fulfilling was that journey to finally be there and be like, this is my movie, you know, 100%, I'm the director of this, you know, as wonderful and how uh, game changing as the documentaries are, it must have been such a great feeling to direct your film.
2: It was, I mean, it was, it was a massive headache from beginning to end. And I loved every moment of it. And it was like, it was the, it was the problem solving. It was the, uh, you know, kind of like taking all sort of like the virtual experience I had watching other directors do their thing and then apply that to my situations like day to day. Um, that was fun and interesting and very, um, I don't know. I just, I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about filmmaking. I learned a lot about dealing with other people and, um, I came out of Crave, like wanting to go right into another movie, which unfortunately didn't happen like that. But I still, I, I didn't, it didn't, it didn't scare me off. And on the, on the contrary, it actually made me more excited than ever to keep trying to direct things. So um, I, it was funny because every day that there was some new challenge and it was a challenge I had never faced before, I would instantly kind of file through the, the files in my brain and, and think of like, okay, what would so-and-so have done in this situation? You know, like, what, what director have I witnessed or documented? what did they do in this situation? And, and it was really great to have a sort of virtual library of reactions to things in in my brain. Um, so, and so by the end of it, I didn't, I didn't necessarily need to rely on those virtual memories. I had my own, you know, I had my own experiences and I had my own sort of like take on things. So, um,
0: I wonder how many of those reactions felt authentic as you were doing them. Like when you were going combing through the um, memory banks of what you saw, like when you were doing them on your, yourself, like how many of those reactions felt authentic versus like, Nope, that just doesn't fit.
2: Um, I think like 90% of the time it was a um, authentic reaction. Like I, like even though it wasn't my initial experience, uh, it still applied well. And I, and I, you know, it's kind of like seasoning. It's like, I didn't, I don't create the spice, but I, I know how to use it to get the taste that I want, right? So it's sort of like that's mm-hmm. kind of what I was doing. Um, and then by the end, I was just, you know, I was kind of on my own wavelength, uh, kind of just directly telling people what I wanted or why and why it should be that way. So it was a good, it was a good icebreaker, it was a good starter to at least kind of like establish, even if it was false confidence. It seemed like I was confident, and that I think any crew likes to see in a director because I've seen it a million times where. If the director is confident and they know what they want and they're clear about what they want, the crew and the actors, all they want to do is make you happy. It's like they might disagree with you on something. They might say, hey, did you consider this other approach? And the actors themselves might get really detailed in other directions that may not be the direction you want to go in. But... Um, so long as you're confident and you feel like you know what you're doing, they'll, they'll follow you to, to make movie you want to make. If you go in there and seeming like you're kind of, you know, nervous and squeamish and you don't feel like you're comfortable with all this and you're just, you know, and you don't know what you're doing, you lose the crew, you know, you lose the crew. So I, I feel like even if I didn't know what I was doing in the early days, if I just conveyed a sense of confidence, that would be enough to get me through to when I was finally up to speed and I finally felt comfortable in my own shoes and I just, you know, I could actually direct the movie. And that was the, the most fun of that film. And and I just I recently made a, a short film I'm really proud of called Love Bite and that's been mm-hmm. playing playing festivals pretty well until the, the pandemic hit. But that one, that was a joy from beginning to end. I mean again we had like production headaches and things, but there was not a moment on Love Bite where I didn't feel fully like in the zone and fully confident in what I was doing. And not in an arrogant way, just in a very comfortable way. Just like this is what we're doing and I love it and it's great. And, and that kind of energy gets people to like bring their own excitement to it. And, uh, and I, I was really upset with myself. I was like, why have I not directed something, you know, like in all this time between, between crave and love bite, why have I not directed anything narrative? I've only been doing the the making of documentaries. So, um, now more than ever, I was like, I'm, I just want to focus on my own stuff and I am. So that's, that's all good. You
1: know, uh, going from working on dangerous days to Blade Runner, the final cut. And, uh, at one point, I don't know if you still are, you know, I hope so, but being attached to do, I hope I shall survive soon, which is another Philip K. Dick story. I mean, was that kind
2: of an interesting kind of circle? Um, yeah, very interesting. Basically when, um, I started working on Blade Runner in, um, 2000, this was like, the, you know, we, we tried many times over the years, but like the final push Kind of began in 2005-ish, I think, and um, Issa Dick Hackett, who's Philip K. Dick's daughter, um, and um, and her sister Laura, they they both asked me to, to go out to lunch to discuss Blade Runner. I said sure, I'd be happy to. And the their their agenda with me was to get me excited about Blade Runner, <laughs> to get me excited about Philip K. Dick. And I'm like, you guys have no idea who you're talking to. You're talking to like this Blade Runner mega nerd who uh you know loves Phil dick and loves the you know everything about Blade Runner. so we left that lunch all friends and we we're all like very very happy they were all on the same page and then over time as i became uh more friendly with isa i asked her i said you know i really want to get back to directing could i possibly direct a short story based on one of your dads or direct a short film based on one of your dad's short stories and she said sure and she gave me five to choose from and then i happen to find i happen to find another one a sixth one which so that was like over 10 years ago and we've been trying to like find a way forward with it. But, you know, um, hopefully one day, uh, it'll see the light in some form. But, um, so that the whole blade runner connection with, with Isa and the whole world of Philip K Dick has ba- spawned a number of wonderful things. I'm always very thankful for,
1: you know, Mike, I don't know if you have uh, any more questions, but I, I had, I just have one more Charles. Uh, and it's something I've wanted to ask you for quite some time. Are you responsible for that little nod on the special features that pretty much bridge
2: Blade Runner to Alien? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it, it's a joke. It's not meant to be canon. It's not meant to be taken seriously. Um, and it's you know, and if you read it, it's very delicately written so that it's not uh-huh. you know, it's not a legal issue. Um, but yeah, it's meant it's meant to be just a bit of a wink to the, uh, the, the shared Ridley verse of it all. Um, I,
1: I think that that's one of the most profound experiences of my life as like a longtime fan of both, just reading that and being like, wait, what? That's that's interesting.
2: Okay, cool.
0: Well, because we have we have
2: on the, on the Prometheus disc one of those other enhancement pods is called um, Merging Ridley Verses. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, I mean, that's not where the idea began because the idea between having alien and blade runner in the same universe, you know, it goes back to the release of blade runner. When you see the graphics inside of uh, the spinner inside of Gaff spinner and they, it is the same exact display of uh, the Nostromo's docking ring from alien mm-hmm. and, it said, and it says purge and all that. Um, so that, that, that goes way back, but of course that was just saving money, right? That was just a cost saving measure. Just like, Hey, let's just steal the graphics from alien and put it in the blade runner. But that always people always thought, oh, are they in the same world? So it was sort of like between that, between the merging Ridley versus piece. Um, you know, at some point when we were gonna try to find a good way to frame all of the uh, viral videos that were produced for Prometheus, um, like the you know Wayland's speech, mm-hmm. his, his TED talk basically, and then um, all the stuff about David, the introduction introducing David. Um, uh, Fox asked me, would what I, what I consider finding a way to kind of create a way to frame all this stuff together for the menus? And I thought, well, maybe I'll do like a video diary where it'll have like, it's almost like the comments you see in a YouTube video, right? So it's like Wayland's notes on his own little video stream. And that just provided a, a huge opportunity to, you know, to kind of play with the idea that maybe, you know, Wayland and, Ty- and Tyrell were contemporaries or they knew, they knew each other somehow without actually saying Tyrell, without actually saying, any of that. So,
0: right. Charles, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I really appreciate this chance to kind of take a look behind into what I found like absolutely essential as we were putting together our shows.
2: I really appreciate that. And, and thank you for having me on. I'm, and I'm, I'm glad you you watch this stuff because <laughs> like <laughs> you, you make it and you wonder if anyone watches it. So thank you for uh, thank you for watching it and thank you for your feedback. I really appreciate it. Jerry. Yes. Yes. We... No,
1: I, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. That was, I, you know, I got the answer with that special features question. Yeah. I think my life's
0: good now. <laughs> so what do we have coming up in the near future?
1: Uh, next we are continuing on the joy red series. And then after that straight into nightmare on Elm street. But I think mm-hmm. this is the perfect way to close out alien. I'm, I'm very content no. with this
0: for, Folks that want to follow us, head over to Twitter at Pod and uh, Pendulum. Um, Give us a follow over there. We tend to be pretty active and we love talking to anyone who listens to the show. One way you can help us out, if you head over to Apple or wherever you get your podcasts, Please feel free to leave us a quick review. You know, rate us and write a few sentences. Um, just leave us your honest thought. It goes a long way to helping people find our show. We actually had a pair of like really nice reviews over the past week, and I really appreciate that. Definitely makes things worthwhile. Um, another way you can support our show is give us your money. Uh, so, <laughs> basically, flat out uh, handout right now. Uh, no, we have recently started our Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com, um, pod, and the pendulum, tiers start at $2, and that will get you a free bonus episode every month and a free blog post every month. Um, I can tell you that I'm in the final stages of editing this month's blog post, which is going to be why I really love, why my, why I love Malcolm McDowell's portrayal of Dr. Loomis so much in Rob Zombie's Halloween. And oh, wow. And how it's actually like a really accurate portrayal of what it's like to work with traumatized children. Um, anyone who's here me, heard me rant about um, Dr. Loomis in the original Halloween series, I think, you know, wants to hear my thoughts on this one. And have we picked a bonus movie this month, Jerry? Uh, it will be It Follows. It's going to be It Follows? Okay, so if you want to hear our thoughts on It Follows, two bucks will get it for you. Head over to patreon.com slash pod and everyone have a great week and we'll see you soon